Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. Yeah, man. So you want you want to get us started off? Sure. All right. Well, well, welcome everyone to the Alert Medic One podcast. We are here today to talk about intravenous access, intraosseous access, whatever kind of access you can get on your patients. We're here to talk about it today. Uh, I know Moose, you did a little bit of research here uh, in reference to that. I don't know if you want to kick us off. Yeah, man. So I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation to have. I think uh, I want. I think we kind of want this to be a back to basics episode, and then we'll build off that, right? So, um, when I think of access, I think of the, the, I mean, honestly, the first thought that comes to my head is, uh, you know, we were, and we were kind of talking about this before, like even when I started in EMS, right? Not when I became a paramedic, but when I started EMS, the, the idea was to kind of just, you know, flood people with as much crystalloid as possible if they were like hypotensive or whatever. Um, at least the, I guess I should say the, um, if it wasn't in the protocol, it was definitely like an idea that people still had. Right. And I would argue maybe people still have. So, uh, part of the conversation that I wanted to have today is, you know, appropriate fluid management and what exactly permissive hypotension and that stuff is, but then kind of diving into the technical aspect aspect of access. So let me actually give it, flip it back to you. When you think of access, what are the first few words or ideas that come to your head? EJ. Oh, well, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but no, I, you're right, too, because, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier when we were off air, what I was taught initially, especially in trauma, two large bore IVs, wide open fluid, flood the patient with as much ringers as you can. Obviously, we now know that's a bad idea, but that's how, how it was taught. And that's, I mean, it was codified in protocol at one time. You know, that's how we taught so no yeah you're absolutely right so let's dive into a little bit of the, the the basics so when you think of intravenous access i'm thinking the different colored uh catheters mm -hmm. right so what all goes into that so uh generally we have uh iv uh, uh catheters that are sized from like a 14 gauge all the way to uh the what 24 gauge right um the 14 gauge is like an external diameter of like 2.1 millimeters right folks really don't not you know if they care don't care and actually this nursing uh resource that i'm using says it goes up to 26 gauges uh, 26 gauge ivs with uh, external diameter of 0.6 millimeters what's interesting to me is the the flow rate right so the amount of you know of, of water flow right so for this table um is for a 14 gauge is 240 cc's a minute 40 nearly 240 mls a minute and uh the 26 gauge is 13 mls per minute so what a drastic change and even from a 20 gauge a 20 gauge is 60 mls per minute whereas a 14 gauge is 240 uh, mls per minute so that i mean what what a huge difference what's the difference between a 20 and an 18 because you know people like to talk about large bore ivs and i'm, I'm using finger finger quotes here that no one can see 
But when we think about large bore IVs, people usually start with the 18 gauge. Sure. So um, the flow rate for an 18 gauge is 90 mLs per minute. So a difference in 30 uh, mLs. And I actually found this paper uh, from, uh, let's see here. So it's written by... Um, uh, Veerhoff et al. Uh, ensuring adequate vascular access in patients with major trauma quality improvement initiative. I believe they're based out of Canada somewhere, but they had this interesting educational tool that they developed um, that says an 18 gauge versus 20 gauge IV, right? Um, saves two minutes and uh, 23 seconds. Uh, in terms of, so what do we have for IV access to infuse one ml of fluid and 18 versus 20 gauge IV saves two minute, uh, two minutes and 23 seconds. What does that mean? Uh, uh, it, it means that you can burn 200 calories by sprinting. Gordon Ramsay cooks a rare steak or, uh, more importantly, airway can be managed, which is kind of general, but this was interesting to me. One extra unit of blood can be given with an 18 gauge IV. That's significant. That's, that's huge, right? Um, a 16 versus 20 gauge IV saves four minutes and 47 seconds. Um, and I'll just skip to the most importantly uh, section. The reason I thought it was Canada is because they said make it one tenth of the way through the Tim Hortons line, which is like a donut shop that I remember from Canada. But it said more importantly, surgeons could open the abdomen and a chest tube can be inserted, which is pretty life-saving interventions, yeah. right? And that was an educational poster uh, that they made for the um, – uh, emergency department. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I, I have always been an 18-gauge guy as my standard IV size. There's really never been any science behind that, but now maybe there is. Um, when I have somebody with a more significant injury, I, of course, go for a larger IV, uh, you know, 16 or 14, or the really sick medical patient as well, of course. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I have a lot to add to that, to be honest. I, I think that really kind of stands on its own. Uh, I think those are some pretty drastic um, examples of what can be done just with a larger IV and how that saves time. That's yeah. pretty cool. I, I, it's interesting. They Part of this uh, process that they wrote in this paper uh, was they were trying to figure out exactly what was causing people to not use large bore IVs and what uh, interventions they did. I was going to bring this up actually. Yeah. So uh, the, the first thing they did um, was re reorganization of intravenous carts, separation of pediatric and adult intravenous uh, sections. Um, they placed large bore intravenous uh, catheters in visible and accessible locations and relabeled the carts to enhance visibility. Then uh, they discussed the topic with groups of ED nurses. So, education, regular education. Um, they developed those posters I was talking about. Um, they decided to do one-to-one -one education with ED nurses. And then, um, let's see here. The last thing they did was they just did continuous education. So really the big thing is how you organize and how mm -hmm. you educate, right, from my understanding. Yeah, I think the education is probably the bigger factor for EMS and the organization because we have all our stuff pretty much in one place right there all the time in sure. most cases. Uh, but I think in my experience there has been this idea that with these, particularly these larger bore 16 and 14 gauge IVs that – <laughs> Sorry, there's a cat in my face. Um, uh, with these 16-gauge and 14-gauge IVs, 
that it's almost a punishment for the patient to give it, that it's going to cause undue pain and distress, and that maybe we are going to get in trouble at the hospital for giving such a large bore IV. Was it really necessary? Yeah. I can tell you that I have given quite a number of 14 and 16 gauge IVs over the past however many years. I have never gotten in trouble for it. I've never had a patient complain about it. If they legitimately needed an IV that big, they're probably not in a position to really complain a whole lot about it. Um, sure. You know, they might they might complain. Um, they might not be happy that it hurt when it popped in, but if they have, you know, multiple gunshot wounds or they're having a STEMI or something like that, they'll forget about it pretty quickly because they have other sure. issues going on. So uh, It's interesting to me. So I was taught when I was went through parent, I mean, you were my instru- one of my instructors, another instructor taught me that like the 18 gauge is the standard adult mm-hmm. IV, um, which was not what I would say experienced when I first started in the field where people were almost surprised that I was going with 18s and said, why won't you just do a 20? Yeah. I've run into the same thing. I've always, like I said earlier, I've always been an 18 gauge guy. Mm-hmm. I've typically seen 20s be the standard. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, I have never seen that written in a textbook mm-hmm. or anything else. That 20 gauge is the standard that you will use. Now, I will say this. I had to get an 18 gauge in my hand when I had to get this knee surgery, and that sucked. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I definitely see, because I've also been told that, and again, this is all anecdotal, go for the hand. So then, like, if the hospital needs the AC, they can go in the AC, which, like, that, that was, doesn't make sense. Yeah, that was me. weird to me. I never really followed that. I always try to get the largest IV in the most like proximal area that I can. Yeah. Um, but usually that was a 20 or an 18 in the AC. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I just, um, yeah. I will tell you, I do avoid ACs in one group of patients. Uh, what, what group is that? Seizures. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, you know, that's fair. When they tense up. Um, but, yeah. Uh, Wait, so you, do you like actively, like, well, I shouldn't say this, but like, not active. That's not what I meant. That's why. But like, do you try to get IVs in people that are actively seizing? No. Okay. All right. I was but say, but if they if they have had a seizure, yes. Um, yeah. then I will usually go for the forearm if I can. Yeah. Or the hand. No, that's fair because then it's facing outward when they're yeah. seizing. Yeah. I know. I I do not try to get an IV on an actively seizing patient. Well, no, because I was like, wait a minute. That's like some <laughs> That'd be super, pretty cool. superhero level, level right? stuff that I can't do. Um, they did a fishbone diagram that's basically a cause and effect analysis, and you'll see why I read this. So um, they they split the uh, methods, uh, the, the, the causes, into, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five uh, different sections. So uh, materials, right? So IV size is not labeled or not enough large bore IVs, which might be a supply thing for us, mm-hmm. right? Depending on what your you know supply person decides to stock and not stock um iv cart not well organized definitely a thing that could affect ems mm-hmm. and iv organization not stocking or no hold on adult and pediatric ivs um iv catheters uh, combined um and then under the ed staff nurses don't have priority in trauma which i guess might mean in terms of care they might not have the priority uh, nurses would like education on IO use, uh, education about why to use larger IVs, um, ultrasound guided IV education, and they don't want to cause pain. 
basically what you covered. Mm-hmm. The big one that we didn't cover is IO use. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, trauma team leaders, they were, um, uh, uh, the causes here were uh, suboptimal nurse education, inadequate number of TTLs to lead resuscitation. Oh, trauma team leaders. Okay. Not every patient is a major trauma. Under the process method section, it said no training or education in IO access, a charge, oh, sorry, change desensitization, uh, no culture of, quote, trauma and unclear protocols. And then this is the one that I wanted to talk about, patient under the cause of, like, patient cause. It says small or difficult, difficult venous access, obesity leads to difficult access, and IVs already inserted pre-hospital. So that's interesting to uh, see that from the uh, you know the hospital perspective and how much of an impact our care might affect. So if we mm-hmm. put a twenty in, I personally haven't seen that as an issue. I feel like the hospital just puts in whatever they need anyway. Right. Uh, but that's cited here as a case. And by the way, the emergency department uh, that we were talking about was um, the University of Alberta Hospital, uh, UAH ED. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's interesting. The the thing that really stands out to me, it comes back to the education issue. I think education and experience with larger bore IVs is important because we don't practice it. If you think about it in the initial paramedic education, we don't practice it on the dummies because the large bore IVs are bad for the dummies. Yeah. Then we go out into the field and we have the student ride with preceptors who didn't do large bore IVs in class because you can't do it on the dummies. And then they didn't do it a lot in real life in many cases because there are people who, again, they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. They're going to hurt the patient. It's not necessary in every case. They're going to, you know, whatever the case is. And I think it kind of creates a a, a feedback loop there where we're kind of, you know, handicapping ourselves in terms of our ability to, I don't know, do large bore IVs. No, no. And the only way to break that cycle is for the paramedic to go ahead and say, okay, I'm going to make this change actively. I'm going to take the mental step to say I'm going to do these large bore IVs, and then I'm going to physically start doing it. And then once you start doing it and you become desensitized to it, that was another thing they mentioned in that that uh, that fishbone chart was the, the sensitization to it. Um, when you become desensitized to it, then you can be more effective at that skill and, you know, hopefully train the next generation a little better. Um, and that's been something that I push, you know, new paramedics and paramedic students that I work with to do is to do these large bore IVs and challenge themselves. You know, if they say, if we have a really sick patient and they say, I'm going to do an 18, I say, no, do a 16. If they say, I'm going to do a 16, I say, no, do a 14. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just make yeah. yourself do it. And that's something you and Joey did with me. Like, yeah. I, I did my first ever EJ attempt with you guys in, the, okay. in some alley. Yeah. And it was actually, <laughs> and I missed it. But, yeah, no, I did okay. it. Um, we all mess them sometimes. The uh, I just want to, uh, while we, since we covered this uh, wishbone diagram, or fishbone, <laughs> wishbone, fishbone diagram, um, <laughs> I just want to, so all these causes led to, uh, the, under the problem statement, it says January 2016, 63% of um, UAH, the so University of Alberta Hospital Emergency Department, major trauma patients did not have adequate vascular access at any point during their resuscitation. Oh, wow. 63%. But that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's. I mean, and I, I, I'd be interested in seeing the numbers in EMS. 
mm-hmm. you know, like if we were able to, you know, take a look at even at like a, you know, like a local level. I bet it's a lot worse because you're talking about a controlled environment of a hospital and 60% don't have adequate access. So in the uncontrolled environment of the back of an ambulance, what percent of trauma patients don't have adequate access? Especially, especially when you have competing uh, priorities. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. No, that's no, that's exactly what I was going to say. Especially when we now have this focus on minimized on-scene time for major traumas and our priorities are now, you know, things like airway and decompression. I mean, it's not a super high priority to get access in, in mm-hmm. the back of the ambulance for a trauma patient. Now it's easier easier uh with like the easy io and stuff like that now which Mm -hmm. i know we'll get into that in a little bit but i i just think that's interesting i'd love to see more studies done on ems you know yeah it's interesting kind of going back to the beginning of the uh paper here so they have a little section that says uh ensuring large bore intravenous access during the resuscitative phase of a trauma patient uh treatment for timely delivery of resuscitation fluids is required for definitive treatment uh i'm gonna butcher this name pursuies law outlines that the flow rate through a cylinder is proportional to its radius uh, to the power of four and inversely proportional to its length, right? So the longer something is, the flow goes down, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and it's proportional to its radius. Therefore, the speed of fluid through a catheter, and in turn, the amount of fluid that can be infused per unit of time, is increased with shorter and larger radii, radii tubes, right? Based on the reported flow rates and only one intravenous... Uh, uh, Right, I guess. Using 18 gauge instead of a 20 gauge in, in, intravenous allows one liter of fluid to be infused approximately two minutes and two seconds faster. A 16 gauge intravenous, and this is what we said we talked about before, right? A 16 gauge intravenous uh, line saves an additional two minutes and four seconds. Faster infusion of blood and blood products allow for rapid and quality resuscitation to avoid the pitfalls of hemorrhage, um, which we've talked about before on the show. With advancement of damage control resuscitation, early adequate intravenous access allows life-saving treatment with plasma, platelets, and blood in a timely fashion. Wider, shorter catheters facilitate reestablishment of a fluid balance that optimizes trauma resuscitation. Protocols recommend placement of 18-gauge or larger uh, catheters for injured patients. Uh, So, I mean, ladies and gentlemen... Length and width matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see here. So, uh, interestingly, do you use saline locks? Um, yes. Um, do you uh, flow? Because I, I work in the 21st century. I don't I don't just flow fluids right into a hub all the time. Well, let me ask you this. If you had a, a person who was, like, significantly hypotensive, would you use a saline lock? Unless the diameter of that saline lock was so small as to hinder the effective delivery of fluid. So this is an interesting topic. Now, I wish I would have pulled this paper up, but, or I think it was, uh, where did I find it? Our saline locks where I work are pretty, the diameter is pretty good. Now, um, what I, and I see now I'm going to have to, I really want to find this. Um, um, Here it is. Uh, Is it this? So maintaining short peripheral catheter pain, see a comparison of saline locks versus continuous infusion. Is this it? Nope. From my understanding, like I, I can't remember which specific educational thing that I went to that told me this, but basically they said if you have a massive trauma patient, right, or a multi-system trauma patient that's pretty sick, don't use saline locks and do it. If you're resuscitating, do a direct um uh, you know, direct connection to the hub. And it kind of makes sense to me just because you are adding that surface area. That's true. Right. And especially that hub, that lower lock hub, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, so I, I, I wish I could have, 
I should have prepped that before. I didn't even think of it, but I just remembered now that we were thinking about it, maybe that's something I can look for. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Maybe we can get someone from trauma to talk about that. Yeah, I, w- I would be interested to learn what the uh, actual like resistance, <clears throat> you know, it comes down to uh, friction loss, essentially. Yeah, I guess yeah, absolutely. You know, to bring a firefighting term into it. <clears throat> Not that I'm a pump operator, but uh, if I were, I would gain a point for using that term. What are your thoughts on you, um, uh, like uh, lower extremity IV sites? I've done it before. I don't have any issue with it as long as there's not, um, you know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a foot IV in a diabetic, uh, mm-hmm. but I have done IVs in the foot before. I've given atropine in the foot before. It worked. Um, I don't really. I mean, I mean, I've tried it maybe a handful of times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I want to get back to what you were talking about with EJs. I feel like those have kind of gone away. They have very much gone away. Uh, it's been a while since I've done an EJ. Uh, I did one. I mean, it's been a couple months, I would say. But I used to do them very often. And mm-hmm. we really don't do them a lot anymore because we have the easy IO and it's easy. Um, uh, I just, I want to get back to this. But interestingly, I... I didn't realize this. Uh, second IV requires medical consultation except when initiating the sepsis protocol and for ALS clinicians who have a priority one patient. Initiation of the second IV shall not delay transport. Yeah. That is the Maryland medical protocol, everybody? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Maryland medical protocol. Yeah. Huh. Did yep. I know that? I mean, maybe I did. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. I actually did know that. Um, and the reason I knew that, well, I knew part of it. Let me Let me walk that back. I knew a second IV technically requires medical consult because when I was a brand new EMTI back in like 2008, um, that was the time of everybody gets two large bore IVs, wide open fluids for your bad traumas. Well, that was what we were taught, but that was contradictory with what was in the protocol because the protocol said you had to consult for a second IV and everybody knew that. Um, so I knew, I knew that was in there. I didn't know you didn't have to consult. I mean, no, it doesn't matter because now it's changed. But, um, if I have a priority one, like I have a STEMI or something like I'm doing two IVs and I'm not consulting to do the second IV, like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, which it has changed. Which that would be, yeah. Okay. But, um, now it says you can do that because it's priority one. So, you know, problem solved. But, you know, back 10, 15 years ago, you were supposed to consult. And it was one of those things where, like, literally nobody did. You know, everybody just did the second line. But mm-hmm. um, Because you're going to consult anyway. And, at, at again, at the time, no hospital would ever tell you no to doing a second IV on the way to the hospital. Yeah. But that's the key is on the way to the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not sitting on scene delaying transport. Fishing. Fishing. Yeah. yeah, especially for a trauma patient. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I mean, we we got sort of like w- even when you were talking about you know uh, you know the priority has gone to like decompression airway stuff like that. We're not saying that that's not appropriate. We're just saying that because of how the paradigm is changing, IV access is falling. Um, uh, uh, you know, 
lower in the totem pole and we agree with it mm-hmm. uh but we just want to highlight the you know the importance of it still yeah um uh you, you ready to transition to ios let's transition to ios so intraosseous access i just want to read from the maryland protocol which is interesting to me patients in which the uh the indications in maryland are patients in which the following conditions are present cardiac arrest or profound hypovolemia, or no available vascular access or following two unsuccessful peripheral IV attempts for patients with any other life-threatening illness or injury requiring immediate pharmacological or volume intervention, or in pediatric patients in cardiac arrest go directly to IO if no peripheral sites are obvious and without having to attempt peripheral access. So pretty straightforward. So tell me about your IO use. Pretty much limited to cardiac arrest in practice. I am struggling to think. I know I have done IOs on patients not in arrest. The last one I can think of was a respiratory extremist who went unresponsive and uh, started getting bagged. Uh, That patient bought an IO. Other than that, Mostly it's, I mean, it's arrest or, or imp- impending code situation, you know, it's, it's not like something we're doing too routinely on people who don't, or who aren't crashing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty much that's what it's there for. Um, yeah. I can't think of a lot of other situations. Yeah. I've used it, um, uh, in the, um, uh, well, so uh, arrests, of course, um, when I first started, it was the proximal tibial site, mm-hmm. um, which transitioned to the, uh, um, humeral head. humeral head. We, I had to do in, in an awake patient, I feel like I've had to do it once or twice. The one I remember was like a severely, uh, it was like a blown, um, fistula and mm-hmm. she was like actively going down the drain yeah and we didn't have time we had to die over right um the uh there's been people that were not in arrest that i've done that were unconscious like you know degrading airways and stuff like that yeah um the uh of course the 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 preferred site in adults is the um the humoral head uh let's see here um allowable sites for io um Oh, you know what? Before we get into that, talk to me about your experience with manual IOs. Oh, yeah. So for a long, I mean, I don't know what you qualify as a long time, but for probably a good five to 10 years, I was using manual IOs before I had access to easy IOs. Um, I was never shy about using them. At the time I got my EMTI, it was right when the manual IO was getting approved for adult cardiac arrests is my recollection of things because prior to that, it was just for pediatric arrest. And if you couldn't get an IV or an EJ on somebody, you just put drugs down the tube. So mm. then all of a sudden we have the manual, the, the approval of the manual IO for the adult cardiac arrest and, and pre-hospital here. I liked it. I didn't shy away from it. I did it quite a number of times. It was extremely satisfying to feel the pop when it went in. Um, Mm -hmm. That was one of my favorite things, um, which is kind of morbid, but, you know, it's EMS. So so, uh, the problem and the primary problem with it, and this was not uncommon, and it was a big problem, 
is that the tip of the needle could get bent inside the catheter Mm -hmm. and you'd be unable to remove the stylet from inside of the IO and it was basically trashed at that point. You Mm -hmm. basically got the IO in and you weren't able to utilize it. So in that case, uh, you had to pull it and start over. Um, And I'm talking like I'd been on calls where we were holding it down and like trying to get it out with pliers and stuff Mm. and like it would not come out. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was a real problem and I don't know if that was a technique problem or if it was just bad luck. Uh, you know, it definitely was not an exact science. I mean, I guess it is, but it's not like the drill where it's just like something you're doing every day, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, because we were mm-hmm. we were going for the IV before trying the IO at least two attempts on every patient, mm-hmm. including the EJ site. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, uh, I'm on the Teleflex website to, under the Arrow EZIO page, which is I feel like the commercial device that many people use. We, mm-hmm. we aren't. Just to be clear, we're not like funded by these dudes. Uh, <laughs> we're not endorsing EZIO. Yeah, we're just we're just. Where uh, you know it's what we use. Um, the humeral head uh, has a, a an average flow rate of six point three liters of fluid under uh, uh, per hour under pressure for the proximal humerus. Uh, what do you think the proximal tibia flow rate is? I'm gonna say you said six point three yeah. for the humerus. I'm gonna say between two and a half and four. One liter. One an liter. hour under pressure for proximal wow, tibia. Wow, that is dramatic. Yeah. No yeah. wonder, yeah. you know, they like us to use, yeah, um, the uh, that site. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it it's pretty it's pretty interesting. The um, uh, we can't talk about uh, like these devices though without talking about the cost. Yeah, and um, whether it was on purpose or not, um, I've definitely been influenced by supply officers that say, "Hey, every time you use a needle." It's over a hundred dollars. Yeah, you know, uh, what are your thoughts on that? What are, you know, and I mean, even interestingly, like I'm under like the ads for Shop EZIO now. Yeah, um, and <laughs> the EZIO forty five millimeter needle is one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, I have never been pressured by anyone to not use a piece of medical technology because of cost. Honestly, anywhere I've worked or volunteered other than maybe when I worked private ambulance, that, that might not be true. Mm -hmm. But, um, in my adult modern life, I have never experienced that. Okay. That's good. That's good. Yeah. The, um, just going, you know, continuing through that IO, the Maryland IO protocol, Mm -hmm. um, uh, which, I mean, we don't necessarily have to go through the whole thing, but, uh, it's, it's, um, one thing I wanted to talk about is the easy, well, not the just easy or uh, lidocaine administration, right? Um, mm-hmm. And how that falls into, uh, you know, how how what the appropriate um, method is at concentration um, to, you know, administer uh, uh, the um, uh, the lidocaine. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, I think if you were to ask the average person, they think it's just an IV push. Right. But the, actually, from my understanding, uh, you have to preload the, the, um, the, the, not the J loop, but whatever the extension tubing is, uh, or the tubing is, 
uh, with lidocaine right. um, and with 2% lidocaine and you have to let that sit for quite some time. Um, and that's just not realistic in, in a, the awake patient. That you're crashing. Exactly. If it's, if it's truly indicated to do an IO. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things that I would say maybe, uh, so at least in my experience isn't taught is, uh, that fact right there. You should not be, uh, for me to be doing an IO to an awake patient, they're, they're pretty sick. I don't have two to four minutes of lidocaine time. Maybe that's like a hospital thing, but I don't have that time. Um, at least I don't think I have that time. Oh, I agree. Um, uh, the uh, the other thing I would say is uh, when it comes to uh, securing the device, how do you like generally secure the uh, like the easy or the IO uh, needle? Well, the textbook answer uh, for the easy IO would be to use the commercial stabilization device that comes with it. Failing that then the way we used to teach the stabilization of manual IOs was the two rolls of gauze uh, taped down. Like around, an impaled Like object. an impaled object, yeah. Yeah, yeah. cool. Uh, let's see. Let's see. I, I, honestly, this, is, this has been one of the mo- more technical conversations we've had this in a long time. This has been a technical conversation. Yeah, I, I, I like it. What else? What else? What are we, uh, what are we missing? Anything? No, I mean, that's – talking about IVs and IOs, I, I think that's pretty uh, – good overview it's not like we're teaching people how to do it for the first time ever just kind of a refresher of some of the finer technical aspects of it so yeah uh it's it's a good discussion yeah i mean i i i think it's helpful to well let's talk about this Uh, i want to get your opinion on how close is too close to the hospital to not do something that depends on one thing is it a trauma patient uh, sure. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about both. Okay. So if it's a trauma patient, how close is too close? If it's a trauma patient and it's a trauma center, the patient needs surgery. I'm picking the patient up. I'm managing the airway. I'm doing everything else en route to the hospital. If I have time to do an IV, great. If I don't, that's mm-hmm. okay. I mean, realistically, you're doing a primary assessment, right? Yes. Obviously. Uh, but apart from that, no, yeah, you, you have like literally a primary assessment and treat the primary assessment findings, right? right? Treat, so, stop the bleeding, yep. manage the airway, yep. um, decompress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's literally what I'm going to do. I, mm-hmm. I want to spend the least amount of time. I don't even go by 10 minutes. I go by the least amount of time I can spend on scene mm-hmm. to understand what the patient's injuries are what I can do to actually stabilize the patient and then beat feet to the trauma center. Mm-hmm. Everything else is going to happen in route to the hospital. Yeah. So that's how I'm going to do that. Uh, for a medical patient, how close is too close to the hospital to do an IV? Funny you ask me that, Moose, because I just uh, finished up doing a presentation on Maryland's critically unstable patient protocol. Mm, nice. Uh, and the answer is, in almost all cases – there is no such thing as too close to the hospital for me to do an IV. The only exception being if I can truly not obtain access and the patient doesn't really need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, because if, if I've got somebody who's really sick, I need to treat that patient on scene mm-hmm. and I need to manage what I can manage, or if it's truly something I can't do anything about, then I need to recognize that 
and transport the patient. Um, but there's not a lot that's going to fall into that category other than like, for example, you know, maybe a stroke, mm-hmm. you know, if I recognize it's a stroke, I get the patient in the ambulance and I do my assessment and I say, okay, this is definitely a stroke. Um, I'm still going to get access on the patient. I mean, it's still going to be easier for me to do it in the back of an ambulance than it's going to be for the hospital to do it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to spend 30 minutes on scene exactly. in that case. You yeah. know, I'm going to I'm going to spend the minimum amount of time because time is brain, right? Yeah. So, um, but yes, in in almost every medical case that I can imagine, I am going to sit on scene and get access before I transport. Sure. Um, regardless of how close I am to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting in places that draw blood, I've worked in two places that draw blood. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those places, or no, both of those places utilize those as part of shortening the stroke time. Yes. You know, yep. um, or if they were septic, shortening the time to antibiotics. Right. So um, it, it's, it's critical, I think, you know, uh, now there's a technique barrier there that I found where, um, even, I mean, I didn't know until like I was shown how to properly draw blood that didn't, you know, make, uh, you know, create lysis or anything like that. But mm. yeah, no, I, I, um, I had a, uh, not the pr- proudest, uh, moment in my career, but I, uh, we were turning into the hospital. So very sick patient and, um, I'd called ahead. They were, you know, uh, we didn't have an airway or anything, but, but well, we were managing the airway as best we could. Right. We mm-hmm. had uh, done an assessment. We were running vital signs. Every, we were literally turning into hospital. And that was when I got to access. It's just that kind of call. Right. right. It was just me and, a, and another a provider um, in the back. And I pulled out the IO and did a humoral IO as we were turning in. And he said, you know, we're turning into the hospital. I'm like, uh, and I, I might have said that. Uh, proximity to the hospital is never an excuse to not do your job. I like that. Uh, and that was, I'm not, I mean, I think it's a cool statement. I apologize to the, the person after, but cause I think that's a kind of unprofessional and rude thing to say in the back of the ambulance. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good saying. Proximity to the hospital is never an excuse to not do your job. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, that's my uh, mental file. Yeah. Uh, ex- uh, you know, within reason. Within right. reason, right? Like all the things that we said. Because uh, if your job is to get that patient to the hospital, then you shouldn't be staying and playing. You're not doing your job at that point. But if you've done all the things you're supposed to be doing, you know, that, and that's why I'm a huge fan of getting that access, that second access point, especially in your, uh, well, according to the protocol, prior to patients, but like you're really sick people, right? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you, if you're not doing anything else, right? If it's either that or writing your report, right? right? And the patient needs it, right? Right. Um, why not? Right. Yeah, they, absolutely. They, have, they have a high lamb score or, you know, that, that kind of feeds into the priority one patient, but like, I don't know, even your really sick priority twos, yeah. you know, at least consider it. it, right? Um, the way I think about it, it kind of bleeds into the pain, ma- pre-hospital pain management conversation. Once the patient gets to the hospital, they have to get triaged, depending on how sick they are. And really, the sickest people are going to get seen immediately, right? But I'm talking about those middle-of-the-road folks who have to get triaged, who have to get registered. Maybe you have to wait in the hallway for three hours, right? right? And shouldn't you be doing your job and getting access and getting those labs and maybe treating your patient with pain management or whatever? And part of that is gaining access. Yes, it is. And that's what I think about. I think in the continuum of care, why not get those things earlier? One of the sayings uh, or one of the statements that I learned to write in my report early on by, from one of my mentors, um, you know, uh, the indication for getting access was the expected clinical course, right? So what does that mean? So we expect 
as the pre-hospital team that once they arrive to the hospital, they will the hospital team will be utilizing this access as part of the expected clinical course of the patient. Yep. Um, and that's how I would justify. Yeah. You know, because uh, I mean, obviously, you can just say, yeah, we you know the priority two patient, whatever. That is justification itself. But like, you know, I felt it was cleaner to write it that way. I've, obviously, that's not advice. I'm just telling you what I did. You know. I mean, I, I basically did the same thing. If I knew you were going to get labs drawn, you got a line in the field. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that easy. Yeah. You know, just I just did it. Um, you know, it, there was early in my career, um, mm-hmm. there was a hospital I interfaced with that obviously I won't name, mm-hmm. uh, but you can probably guess where it is, um, where they had a policy that they did not use EMS lines. They did not utilize EMS lines. Interesting. So if you did an IV on somebody pre-hospital, the first thing that would happen is the hospital would pull it and put their own in. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. They probably got burned. I mean, I'm not saying it's appropriate. I don't know why you would. Yeah, they probably did. Uh, they probably did, but uh, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's not cool. That's not cool at all. It's unfair to the patient. Very unfair to the patient. You're sticking them twice. Yep. Where do you think the Where do you think ultrasound falls in for EMS for IVs? I know very little bit. I know very little about IV, uh, ultrasound guided Same. IVs. Same. Uh, so I, that's I know very little about ultrasound. Yeah. Honestly, Same like, that's here. just. Uh, I will have to learn more about that. Yeah. I um. I'll preface this by saying that I don't know anything about ultrasound. Uh, I mean, I've taken the classes and I've like you know, the paramedic ultrasound courses or whatever. I, I, I have an opinion that I think it's. I think it's sort of like innovation where like if you have a small group of people that does it all the time, it's mm. useful. Who's also like an advanced practice, you know, level person, like an RSI guy who like, you know, someone who you have, I feel like you have to keep the pool small so that they get the most amount of reps and they can keep fresh and, uh, um, what's the term? Um, uh, uh, like keep up on their skills. Yeah. Keep up on their, their competence. That's competency. what I was Yeah. Their yeah, competency, right? Like keep up competency. Um, I, I mean, I hate to say it. I just don't think we, I, and I, I don't have any data to back this up, but do we really see that many people? Like does, does the average paramedic see that many people to be able to regularly use ultrasound? Maybe if we expanded the scope, but like when we're talking about just fast exams, just plural sliding, just, uh, you know, a cardiac standstill, stuff like that. Um, and maybe we'll have to get someone on here that actually knows what, uh, talking about ultrasound. I have had this conversation with several people because I feel the way you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and this includes my medical director at work who may be somebody worth talking about this to that. Oh yeah. I'm supposed to text him actually. I'll text him him about. Because I had this conversation with him. Um, he was a big advocate for it. I expressed kind of my, the same doubts you're expressing. And, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't feel differently than you. Uh, but some people do feel differently than us and I'm, I'm open to it. You know, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but yeah, we'll, uh, it's an exciting new time in EMS, and I'm sure there's utility in the skill for yeah. us. What I don't want to do is make the mistake of uh, some of our predecessors who said that the things that we do now actively, like 12 leads, are a waste of time. Like, yes. I don't want to – I'm not saying that. No. I'm saying that there's absolutely a role. I just want to – I don't want to be the opposite end of the spectrum uh, of, like, saying, oh, let's do anything and everything. Well, it's – it's we're going to have to find our way and define its 
utilization in EMS. I feel like things like looking at cardiac standstill, I'm going to do that every day at work. Mm -hmm. Like that's, yep. that's going to be something I get really good at looking for, uh, you know, ultrasound guided IVs. A lot of people are going to get good at that. Like that's, yeah. that's something we can definitely do. Doing a fast exam. I mean, I see trauma, but how often am I going to do a fast exam? I don't know. Like when's it really indicated? Like, if I have somebody who's shot in the abdomen, why would I waste time doing a fast mm -hmm. exam? I know they need to go to a trauma center. Especially you know when you're I mean? when you're not well. And I, again, I, I know I said proximity to the hospital is never an excuse not to do your job. But when you have, you maybe it's not even a GSW. Maybe it's like a car wreck, right? Sure. If, if your trauma center is five minutes away and your other hospital is five minutes away, why? Now, where does it come into play? I think when your trauma center is an hour and a half yes. away and your local hospital is an hour away uh, or maybe half an hour away and maybe you're like trying to maybe have a you know a charlie you know a charlie category trauma or something like that or delta cat deltas right? right deltas so for people not from maryland so like the lowest priority trauma um maybe that's when a fast exam you have some time right mm -hmm. you're not really beating feet to the hospital uh you have some time and this uh, and an ultrasound decides um a significant, uh, you know, decides if you go to the hour and a half or not, if aviation's down or specifically, and that has an impact on the health, uh, you know, the status, system status management of the, where you're working. Cause maybe right. you're the only paramedic available. So I, I do see utility and I don't want yes. our listeners to think I don't see utility. I just, I want to, I'm cautiously optimistic and I want to be measured in how we execute this. Uh, I, I got to say a lot of the things that are coming up. I really think we're in this renaissance of EMS. Um, a lot of the advanced practice stuff that's coming up, uh, well, sorry, I shouldn't, I kind of put the cart before the horse there. A lot of the skills that are coming up, I really see value in an advanced practice license. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. gotta say, I see it. I, I, I or, you know, uh, or a certification that's like more accepted. Um, I think EMS is so different everywhere, though. I think it has to start at the at least the state level, if not the local level. But mm -hmm. like, I mean, or like some sort of standardization and increase in education. I, I um, there's no point in knowing how to ultrasound if you can't tell me right now where the liver is. Right. Like but it, how it, many it, paramedics can't tell you where the liver and the spleen are? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I would like to think it's not a high number. But like, and it's, it's not higher than you think. Yeah, and I'm not trying to talk down on anyone. But no, I'm not either. It's just like that. Our patients deserve it, right? Yeah. Our patients deserve a competent and educated paramedic who, if they're doing these advanced practice skills, should know exactly what's going on and where everything is. Right. Um. And I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm not that guy, right? Like, I'm not in the field 48 hours a week. I don't do it full time. I wouldn't expect to be someone that uh, ultrasounds or has the credentials to ultrasound. Um, once a year, but I also don't expect to be an RSI paramedic, right? Right. I'm not dropping RSI meds and, you know, w you know, where I work PRN, like, and I wouldn't expect to, right. How many tubes do I get in a year now? One, right. three, five, you know, in a year right. where I used to get like one a shift because it was my full-time job. You know, it's what I did. Um, yeah, no, it, it's, um, I know we kind of transitioned the conversation. Um, That's okay. but, um, yeah, no, I think it's uh, I think it's an important conversation to have, and maybe we can we can have a physician on or whoever to, uh, you know, talk about it. Uh, what else, man? Anything else? You good? 
No, I don't have anything else on this topic, Moose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great IV conversation yeah. and access conversation. And, um, you know, obviously medication administration also comes into this. So it's maybe a conversation for a later day. Um, yeah, you want to finish this out? Thank you, everybody, for listening to Alert Medic One. It has been awesome to be on the air with all of you again. Please check us out, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. And have a wonderful day, wonderful night, wherever you are. Be safe. Thanks for listening. Leave us a like, rating, and review. Good night. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. 